This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello i'm luke jones sitting in for matt chorley he's taken the week off to finally edit down his bonkbuster explosive tell-all diaries This is the Red Box Politics Podcast, bringing you the best of Matt's Times Radio show, today with special guest host, me. We are wishing Rishi Sunak a happy Chancellor birthday today after one whole year in office and asking how can he stay on top of the polls when there are so many tough decisions ahead. But first, we will pick the brains of our columnists, Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. We're going to talk Easter holidays first of all. Does a um, does a staycation, self catering staycation, do it for you, Libby? Oh, I don't know. It might do. I'm, I'm a bit bored with all this chat about an alfresco spring. They, mm-hmm. they get a phrase like date, data, not dates, you know, and, and they, they work it to hell. I think what's really interesting about all this is that everybody is ignoring the one huge restriction, which for a lot of people is the central and most oppressive one, and that is the ban on stepping inside anyone else's house or having a visitor for a cup of tea at your own kitchen table, distanced, whatever. Mm. Uh, these are very small, humble freedoms, but they're traditional ones and they mm. matter to a lot of people. Eight million people live alone in this country and it's cold outside and it's often wet and it's never mentioned. They talk about hospitality, they talk about pubs, they talk about cafes, they talk about festivals. They don't talk about this basic freedom to be allowed to visit somebody. Is that right, Rachel? I think that's right. Libby's absolutely right. And you can see Boris Johnson, he's like a sort of dog straining at the leash, isn't he? He's desperate to let people out and be the great liberator and the great optimist and the boosterist who can let us all go back to normal. And he's also got all his MPs, um, you know, snapping at his heels to urging him to let the country out of lockdown. But then he's got his minders and sort of his the rational part of his brain holding him back like the lead on the dog. Uh, and you can see that tension in him the whole time, desperately trying to let us all out, but then knowing that he can't. And I think I, I agree with Libby about meeting people at home and having people over for coffee or whatever. I'd love to do that. But I think the priority has just got to be the schools now. And they've got to get those open on March the 8th, as they promised. And if that was delayed any longer, that would just be too awful for the children who've lost almost a year now of proper schooling Mm. so that's got to be the priority and if we all have to wait a bit longer for a 
staycation. I don't know. I feel like people are almost self-regulating now. They're they're managing their own expectations. I've got no great hopes for, you know, I'm desperately hoping we can go away in the summer, but I'm certainly not planning anything for Easter. But all of this stuff that's in the papers today and that was in the papers yesterday is just speculation about what the Prime Minister might announce in his roadmap out of lockdown on the 22nd of February. But the, the more we learn about that roadmap, the, the more it sounds it's going to be incredibly vague because it's going to be dictated by where we are in terms of how well we're doing in terms of the vaccination rate and getting um, infection rates down. So Libya, is there much point in having a kind of plan if it is just so vague? What, why promises a best case scenario if we're heading for the worst? I actually do think there there has to be a plan. I mean, it has to be, uh, I think they they could start designing the next lot of tiers and how that will work and whether they're going to be national, whether they're going to be regional. I think they should be talking about it because I do think people need to know that there is planning for the time after all this, particularly now that, I mean, we've done the first, the most vulnerable group, you know, who, who are over 80% of all serious hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, you know, they've been vaccinated. These vaccinations we know do have an effect. Once they start to see what the effect is, they'll be able to make more detailed plans. But I agree with Rachel, there's this extraordinary spectacle of Boris Johnson trying terribly hard sort of to be, you know, not to be the cheery, optimistic, promising <laughs> chap that he that he likes to be. Um, and I quite like that. I like the fact that we've got a prime minister who is hating this as much as we all are. You know, when I look at somebody like, you know, the, the sainted Jacinda Ardern, who did an instant snap lockdown with roadblocks because three cases appeared, you know, sort of think, actually, I'm quite glad that we've got somebody, uh, the head of the country, for all his faults, who really desperately wants life to be normal and sociable. Libby, it sounds like you're you're minded to agree with the the Mark Harpers and the Steve Bakers of this world. The actually, there's no, no... Not, not, not not all the way. No, not not all the way. But I just I just think that I'm I'm glad that 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 they exist, and I'm glad that the prime minister's reluctance exists. But I I agree with Rachel. We have to get the schools back, you know, and then we have to try and get some kind of economy back. Yeah, and and Rachel. Um, is there too much focus on on holidays? It's sort of holidays and pubs seem to be the things that we come back to time and time again. And if you actually tot up how much time any any one person spends in a pub or on holiday, as opposed to having a cup of tea inside with a friend, um, yeah. it's kind of not that significant, is it? I know. I think it's Boris Johnson seems to have alighted on pubs as this sort of great symbol of British liberty, freedom. He talked about, didn't he, the Englishman's right to go and have a drink in a pub, I can't remember his phrase, and it was the English man's right, I seem to remember, but there is that sense <laughs> of the pub as this great symbol of British freedom. And actually, it's a rather old-fashioned view of how people live. I mean, obviously, I'm sure pubs are important and everything, but so are theatres, so are having dinner with friends, so as, um, you know, going around to see someone for a cup of tea, as Libby says, uh, and actually so visiting elderly relatives, that's the, the thing I'm desperate to do as well. Mm. So not just the, in the pub. Um, and holidays are, I suppose, they're a symbol of something to look forward to, aren't, you? aren't they, as well as the actual holiday. It's something that you, you escape from your normal life. So I suppose those are the two iconic things. But actually it's real life that matters most, isn't it? It's, you know, being able to visit... Uh, grand, grandparents being able to hug their grandchildren. Yeah, 
And in fact, someone has just texted in to say, forget a staycation, I want to see my mum and dad. I'm in Scotland, they're in Cumbria, and having cooked pretty much every meal for a year, I'm damned if I'm going self-catering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know that feeling, exactly. With less, fewer takeaways maybe than at home. <laughs> and even on the, on the theme of pubs, someone was pointing out yesterday that even, we're going to be talking a bit more about Rishi Sunak a little bit later on, but even um, teetotaler Rishi Sunak the other day said, oh, I can't wait to get back to the pub. It sort of seems something that politicians feel like they need to get on board with, Libby. Mm. We just we just want to get together, really. I mean, that, that sense of togetherness. I mean, I'm where I live, I'm quite lucky. I can walk around the village and I will probably meet two or three people who I know or half know and we can at least exchange a word. You know, but often in the rain, <laughs> yeah. lately in the snow, that was good. Uh, but it, 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 is, it is a necessary thing. And we, uh, the country is being, I think, very patient uh, but the time will come when we just have to get out. And, and as Rachel says, it's, it's really nothing to do with holidays or sort of nights out and or clubbing in the pub. Not for most people, most older people, especially middle aged people. It's just the ability to see your friends when you want to see your friends and to travel to see them. I want to see my brother. I haven't seen my, my brothers, either of my brothers for... Yeah, really. And on the point of schools, um, Rachel, you and Alice Thompson took, um, writing in the paper today about how important that is, all these warnings from England's Children's Commissioner for England about, you know, it's not just missing out on education, but it's drug dealers uh, making hay, recruiting kids um, during this time as well. Yeah, all children are out of their normal routines. They're out of the structures that uh, are just as important, I think, for them as the actual classes that they do. And children need to see their friends too. Children need to get out of the house, away from their parents, and sort of with authority figures who are the good authority figures. Um, and the Children's Commissioner was warning that, in fact, the drug dealers and the gangs are, um, you know, as active as ever. The demand for drugs is. Uh, as high than ever the police are warning during lockdown and the drug dealers are using more and more middle class children who they think are less easy to detect um, and less conspicuous perhaps and the county lines it's harder for children to travel on trains Mm. so they're recruiting locally uh, and more and more children getting dragged into that sort of vicious circle and net so they need to make sure that the the normality of routine for children returns as quickly as possible and football clubs and all the uh, um, after school clubs as well as the actual classes Mm. Libby tell us about your column today and your and your worry of woke prudes the sort of modern Mary Whitehousery uh, yes, well, I, I wanted to make a parallel between the extreme clean-up entertainment campaigns that Mary Whitehouse uh, ran and the president sort of cancel culture and trying to censor old television programs and things because Whitehouse had a point about really nasty porn and child sexual images and she had some successes there. But she went so far over the top, you know, demanding the word knickers be taken out of a Beatles <laughs> song and so on and that couples shouldn't be seen, unmarried couples waking up in bed the next morning shouldn't be seen, that she became ridiculed. And that kind of really opened the door for all the big violent porn culture that we have now because everybody laughed at White House and Longford. And in the same way, uh, what we're finding now with some of the extreme nonsense of what is that awful word called wokery, uh, you're you're starting to pick up more jeering racist stuff and anti-gay, anti-trans stuff online because people think they're the rebels, you know. And so Mm -hmm. I think going too far in any campaign for purifying anything tends to lead to a nasty backlash and I just thought there was an interesting parallel that was all. Rachel do you see that parallel? 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like the point about, um, you know, what's seen as woke, and people mean two different things by that word, but it should be about tolerance and respect for others. And part of that is not actually um, banning and saying people can't have different opinions. There should be a sort of tolerance for other people's opinions, whatever they are, uh, and that and tolerance for difference, um, but also tolerance for different opinions. And that's what the kind of liberal democracy should be about. But on the other hand, what I also find really worrying is the kind of government's attempt to turn this into a culture war, the talk of war oh, on yeah. woke. Um, whereas actually, you know, it's all about we're going to legislate to make sure people can't topple the statues. We're going to have a statutory freedom of speech commissioner at universities, which is sort of contradiction in terms. And that sense of um, turning this into a fight the whole time, actually, on both sides, it should really be about respect and tolerance. And we've, Alice Thompson and I have interviewed for Past Imperfect this week, Nadia Hussein, the yeah. Bake Off winner. And she talks really movingly about, you know, racism has changed since her grandfather's generation when it was skinheads beat him up in the street. But now she has this awful racism and attacks online and on Twitter, um, which is in some ways even more pernicious because it's in your home you can't escape it and we can't you know that it's not woke to say that's not acceptable and that's wrong um so it's about getting a balance but there needs to be tolerance on both sides and uh, libby it, you also talk about the, the kind of um in terms of the contrast between young folk today and mary whitehouse way back when the, the sort of new fresh twist of, of what you call punitive sadism about it Yes, I think I think the punitive thing really, really bothers me because, I mean, Mary Whitehouse just wanted all this stuff kind of wiping off the screen. You know, mm. and if it wasn't there, she was fine. But what the what some of the campaigners now want, and it is a minority, but it's a very strong and, and, and vocal and noticeable minority. They want people punished. They want their books rejected by publishers you know they they want um, uh, people to be vilified you know for, for saying that for example they believe that you know women are women and that's that uh, they they want people to lose their jobs people have lost their jobs and corporations big companies big organizations kowtow to this and they do wipe people out and and sometimes you know lose them their actual jobs for these kind of reasons and that I don't like at all that's a punitive one should be able to just say look you're wrong look what you're saying is ridiculous you know a bit of scorn a bit of contempt a bit of a shrug you know don't agree with you no sensible person agrees with you end of but no we can't have that you know people have got to be wiped out and cancelled and that actually is happening and sometimes it's happening practically to people who aren't very strong and don't have an ability to fight back and that i think is really sinister i wonder you both as columnists and rachel do you do you fear that 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 censure that and the possible punishment that might come with it even if it is just on Twitter? There are definitely issues. So I'm quite nervous of writing about trans issues because I'm worried I'm going to say the wrong thing and I'm going to offend somebody or, or make them... There are certain things, and I found also... When, you, when I was writing about Jeremy Corbyn, some of the attacks that you got from the left were absolutely vicious and very personal. And there is definitely that sort of certain parts of... Um, the kind of Twitter sphere. If you touch on that, you absolutely get um, vilified. We interviewed um, Rosie Duffield recently, who had strong views about women-only spaces and yes. the 
trans debate. And the reaction on Twitter to her and to that interview was really excoriating. And, and you sort of think she's got an opinion. She's not saying anything, you know, either illegal or um, she's mm. not really showing any prejudice. And yet she's being absolutely vilified for her opinions uh, in a way that's sort of disproportionate. Do you worry about that, Libby? Uh, well, I'm a, a world expert at muting people on Twitter. <laughs> and, and what's muting, my not mute blocking. I, no, no, you never block them because then they know that they've, they've hit you. You know, yes. you, you, just, you just silence them to your own ears. And of course, the <laughs> um, other thing is people who keep retweeting idiots, you see, then I sometimes have to consider whether to do cancel retweets on them. Of course, you, you, I like an argument and I like to discuss things. I don't want to upset anybody who is sensible and who I actually like. Yeah. You know, if there's some young person who has a terrifically strong opinion I don't agree with, you know, I will listen quite a lot you know, before sort of gently putting forward some small arguments. But no, I think also I'm, I'm older than Rachel. I'm quite a bit older than Rachel, I think. And I don't care anymore. <laughs> you can hate me if you like. You can cancel me if you like. You can write to the Times editor and, and tell him that I should be wiped out, you know, which some people do. Fine. OK, that's his choice. You know, it, it, old age is a tremendous thing. And I just hit 70 and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> That's good to hear. Can you leave us, Libby, with there's a there's a great anecdote in your column about going back to the topic of Mary Whitehouse and <laughs> um, and her, her dishing out awards. Oh, yes. In the Thatcher years, um, she she actually had quite a lot of sort of pull with the prime minister. You know, Premier Thatcher liked her and she offered us an award. The Today programme, which I was a presenter of, uh, got an award for good, clean broadcasting. And we was really <laughs> embarrassed and miserable. And so we went over to the we went over to um, All Souls opposite for the sort of drinks reception. And there was Mary Whitehouse and there was this terrible sort of weird, spiky, sort of horrible looking object. We were being presented and that, the, you know, gritted teeth all round from the, the producers and the editors and um, John Timpson mutters me oh so it looks a bit phallic and I just sort of said depends what you're used to John and he choked on his drink it's very rare that one remembers making a good joke because I don't make that many but I do remember that one and of course Mary Whitehouse didn't hear this which is a great source of sadness. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. That was Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. I'm Luke Jones. Matt Jawley has taken the week off to reassess his priorities and spend more time with his family. Up next, we're going to talk about all things Rishi Sunak. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So it's time to wish Rishi Sunak a happy first Chancellor birthday. This is a budget that will deliver on our promises to the British people. And it is the budget of a government that gets things done. Combined with our previous announcements on public services and business support, our planned economic response will be one of the most comprehensive in the world. To all those at home right now, anxious about the days ahead, I say this. You will not face this alone. We have to be honest. Leaving the furlough scheme open forever gives people false hope that it will always be possible to return to the jobs they had before. So the furlough will wind down flexibly and gradually, supporting businesses and people through to October. To get customers back into restaurants, cafes and pubs and protect the 1.8 million people who work in them, I can announce today that for the month of August we will give everyone in the country an Eat Out to Help Out discount. 1.8 million people work in this industry. They need our support and with this measure we can all Eat out to help out. Yeah. There's a big difference between correlation and causation, so I would be, I would be, I guess, cautious about jumping to simplistic conclusions. There's also different data, which also using Public Health England data, uh, which hospitality industry has also analysed, and that showed uh, a very small percentage uh, of hospitality being a cause for transmissions. I think one thing we know is, and actually I speak to our scientists almost every sure. day, it, it's incredibly difficult at, at, at such a granular level to pinpoint exactly the cause of transmission. Our economic plan is evolving because the situation is evolving. In March, we hoped we were facing a temporary period of disruption. What's now clear, as the Prime Minister and our scientific advisers have said, is that for at least the next six months, the virus and restrictions are going to be a fact of our lives. It's a moment of great hope and opportunity, but there's still work to do, right? We've got to get the vaccines, we've got to roll them out. All that work is ongoing. People should feel reassured about that. But I think, as I said, it will give people that glimmer of hope that, you know, we're we're making our way through this. Even with the significant economic support we've provided, over 800,000 people have lost their job since February. And while the new national restrictions are necessary to control the spread of the virus, they will have a further significant economic impact. We should expect the economy to get worse before it gets better. We even managed to camp that up after UK Hun. Who who would have thought it? Rishi Sunak, of course, in office during one of the worst economic downturns the UK has ever seen. But on this year-long anniversary, how has the pandemic Chancellor fared? In just a moment, we'll speak to two former economic advisers, uh, to George Osborne and John McDonnell, about how you 
try and keep your Chancellor popular. But first, let's speak to Kieran Pedley, Head of Politics at Ipsos Mori, here to talk about the cold, hard numbers. Morning, Kieran. Good morning. So um, break it down for us. You've got new polling, which is in the Times Red Box email this morning. How, um, how popular is he? So our Ipsos Mori political monitor is something that's been going since the late 70s. And in, in that time, we've tracked voting intentions. So, for example, the Conservatives are currently four points ahead of Labour with our numbers, but also job satisfaction amongst the public with people like the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition. And in this case, we're talking about the Chancellor. Um, I think it's fair to say that Rishi Sunak's numbers are historically impressive. Um, 56% of the public tell us that they're satisfied with the job he's doing as Chancellor in our most recent poll a couple of weekends ago. Um, It's been as high as 64% last September. And as I mentioned, we can go back to the late 70s to compare to other Chancellors to put this in context. That 64% that Rishi Sunak achieved last September has only ever been beaten by Dennis Healy, in uh, 1978, and that's before the winter of discontent, of mm. course. His current figure of 56% has only ever really been matched um, by Gordon Brown in the early 2000s. I suppose it's, uh, it's, it's easy to forget how popular Gordon Brown once was, at least as, as Chancellor, um, but that was before Iraq and when he was at the height of his powers. So, put simply, um, Rishi Sunak's current numbers are historically impressive for a Chancellor. I suppose the question is, will it last? Um, to, put, to maybe ask why that might be, why are his numbers so impressive? But when we look at um, how he's perceived to have handled coronavirus, 55% of the public tell us he's handled coronavirus well, 20% say badly. Now, if we subtract one from the other to create what we call a net rating, mm. his net rating is a positive one. It's plus 35. Um, very, very good. When you compare to other members of the government, Matt Hancock's on minus one, Boris Johnson minus seven, the government overall minus eight. So a lot of numbers there. But whether you compare Rishi Sunak's job satisfaction ratings to previous chancellors or you compare how he's perceived to handle the pandemic to his colleagues in government, whichever way you look at it, these are impressive figures. Well, we can we can even hear a bit of what some people think about this, because, of course, um, this show regularly does those amazing focus groups. And Rishi Sunak has, has had something of a very favourable response ever since these focus groups started. Let's have a listen. I think he, I like him. I think he's doing a good job. I think he's trying to keep the country moving and keep the country going as well as looking after people. I'll be honest, I'd love to know where they're finding all the money from that they keep pulling out of fresh air because for years all we've heard is the government scheme for all of a sudden they've got millions and millions. <laughs> I like him. I'm getting I'm getting this grant, this self-employed grant every three months. Yeah, I think he's doing a good thing by, by uh, uh, being generous with this, with this whole thing right from the start. I think his kind of help and support is very helpful for everybody. Yeah, I think he's done a, a good job, but I, just, I was just thinking, could you imagine how much he would have been criticised if he was a Labour Chancellor giving people money to stay at home? You'd never hear the end of it. So that was this show's focus group's uh, view of Rishi Sunak. Uh, earlier this month, the focus group was also asked about Annalise Dodds, the, the Labour shadow Chancellor. This is what they made of her. And uh, Does anyone know who Annalise Dodds is? Who? Who? Any thoughts on Annalise Dodds? Never heard of her. Never heard of her. Tom? No. Anyone? No. I think so. So she's Labour's shadow to Rishi Sunak. So she's Labour's shadow chancellor. Okay. Uh, Fair enough. Has that jogged any memories or or not? No. 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 Never heard of her. It doesn't ring a bell. Brutal, absolutely savage. Kieran, does that um, does that put Rishi Sunak in a good 
Stead then to be maybe the next leader of the Conservative Party or Prime Minister? Is that, is that the sort of logical extension of all of this? Well, just briefly, I mean, but before I get there, on our numbers, I mean, our numbers kind of back up what um, those, those people in the focus groups uh, said. So yeah. um, 42% know a great deal or a fair amount about Rishi Sunak, whereas only 11% know a great deal or a fair amount about Annalise Dodds. And when we ask who, who's preferred as Chancellor, people prefer Rishi Sunak by 48 points to 17, and the Conservatives lead Labour by 18 points on the government. So you, you get the picture. I mean, I think when you, you know the economy is always a, a key battleground, maybe not the only battleground mm. in a general election, but it's, a, it's an important one and something to, to watch, numbers to watch in the future. I mean, in terms of Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. So we've got a survey of um, MPs where we've asked who the most impressive parliamentarian of any party is at the moment. Yeah. So don't forget, if there was a vacancy, Conservative MPs would be picking you know, the candidates to go forward. Um, and Rishi Sunak was the clear winner with Conservative MPs. 44% of Conservative MPs tell us in a recent survey he's the most impressive parliamentarian. 23% chose Matt Hancock and no one else made double digits. Now, um, other surveys show that um, whilst Rishi Sunak is popular with the Tory grassroots, Con Home have a, a, a regular survey where they ask um, who, who, who sort of Conservative grassroots like. Others are popular too, like Liz Truss and Dominic Raab. So if you look at the mechanics of a Conservative leadership race, um, yes, Rishi Sunak is popular with MPs, but there are other people that are popular with the grassroots, and the, the Conservative grassroots normally pick the, uh, the end winner. Um, not always, of course, as Theresa May will tell you. Um, but when we ask the public, do you think Rishi Sunak has what it takes to be a good prime minister? Only 32% say, actually, yes, we agree. He has what it takes to be a good prime minister. Um, that's not to say that everyone else disagrees. 26% disagree. So what you've got is a large number of people that say, yeah, I think he's doing a good job as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Really happy with him. Is he you know, ready for the top job? Don't know yet. And to be fair, maybe one year in, you know, you wouldn't necessarily mm. expect people to be clamouring for him to be in number 10. I guess the point is just because people think he's doing a good job as Chancellor doesn't mean that they are clamouring uh, for him to be yeah. Prime Minister. Of course, we don't know when, you know, if and when Boris Johnson will go. Boris Johnson could be around uh, for a long time yet. So I think jury's out on him as, uh, as Prime Minister and there'll be several hoops to navigate for him to get there. Mm. Um, but certainly the public think he's doing a good job in, uh, in his current role. Thanks very much for your time this morning, Kieran. I appreciate it. That's Kieran Pedley, who is head of politics at Ipsos Mori, uh, with all those uh, numbers, the polling numbers on how well Rishi Sunak is doing. Uh, in a moment, we'll speak to two former advisers um, on how to manage a chancellor's image, someone who's advised George Osborne, someone who has advised John McDonnell. How do you do it? How do you make them popular? How do you stop them from, well, being booed at the Olympics, uh, for one? <laughs> This is Times Radio. It's happy one year ministerial birthday for Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and we can go now live to Rupert Harrison, who was uh, Chief of Staff for Conservative Chancellor George Osborne at one point. Morning, Rupert. Morning. And also James Medway, uh, an economist who previously advised the former Labour Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Hi, James. Good morning. Um, Rupert, if I can start with you, um, the numbers that we just heard there from uh, from Kieran and Ipsos Mori, um, what do you make of, of, of the Chancellor's current position and maybe how precarious it might be? Well, look, I think that they reflect the truth about the UK's response to the crisis, which is that, you know, I'm sure there'll be you know, public inquiries and debates about how the virus has been managed. But when it comes to the economic response, you know, the UK clearly stacks up pretty well internationally. We've had a very... Um, uh, kind of 
front foot, large scale response from Rishi Sunak and the Treasury, really right from his first budget. If you remember, his first budget was very early in the pandemic and before I think most people understood quite how all consuming it would become. And he, he scrapped everything else he was going to do focused on sort of that initial package of pandemic support, which obviously has been dwarfed by what's come since. Uh, but I think there was a sort of early understanding that this was going to be a game changer, that it needed some very large scale interventions and things like, you know, crucially the furlough scheme and those other support schemes that were mentioned in the, the packages we just heard. Yeah. Uh, you know, the UK doesn't have a history of things like that. We, you know, some European countries have had, you know, part-time working schemes set up and long-standing, but the Treasury and Rishi Zunat, you know, got that up and running in a matter of weeks from scratch. And I think it's that, you know, that, I think that has reflected well on him, and it's also reflected well on the sort of economic institutions like the Treasury and the Bank of England that they have mm. responded so well under pressure. James, what do you think? Well, I'd, I'd largely agree with that assessment. Uh, I think, you know, leaving aside the the, the sort of what's happened with the the public. And the slow pace of lockdown and that sort of thing. The initial response from Rishi Sunak in the Treasury was was widely, uh, when wide plaudits and, and rightly so for, for the speed with which it was introduced. And I think this is something that's been quite striking with him is that he's he's displayed a kind of intellectual flexibility around this, uh, and that that makes him politically very challenging for, for Labour to deal with if we look into the future. That if he can maintain that kind of creativity uh, and dealing with quite a radically new situation and thinking through what it means for what government does, then I think he's in an extremely strong position from here on in. Where he's come a cropper, I think, over the last year is when he's slightly reverted to type when he started talking about and actually starting to implement, winding back some support, getting the economy moving again, to use the phrase that, that sometimes crops up. That's that's where he's, he started to look a bit more vulnerable. But if he can maintain this uh, way of, you know, treating the economy as a sort of second order problem to the public health issue right now and then laying out what it's going to look like in the future because we're going to be dealing with coronavirus for a long period of time now so he has to lay out something in the future it has to say what kind of jobs people are doing where the investment's going to come from this sort of thing mm. if you can maintain that kind of intellectual flexibility is in a very strong position i think and is that fair rupert because a lot of the reports about um what debates are going on in government and in cabinet place um rishi sunak as being uh, one of the hawks one of the people who is uh, quick to reopen, wanting to quickly wind down the furlough scheme and get things back to normal as, as quickly as possible. Will he come a cropper on that as, as we all slowly realise that actually caution is, is the name of the game? Well, I hope not. I mean, I'm personally pretty optimistic. I think that we will see that this reopening is going to happen more quickly and the bounce back is going to be stronger than people expect, which hopefully will put him in a strong position. But you know, the, the, the argument that he's been making in terms of, you know, supporting the economy, trying to open up as quickly as is safe. Like you, you know, any chancellor will be in cabinet making those arguments because you are the you know the one person in cabinet who's responsible for the taxpayer, who's responsible for the for the overall performance of the economy. And that's why we have cabinet government, because you have the chancellor in there saying, look, these are my concerns, and then you have the health secretary saying these are my concerns, and then you get the Prime Minister and the Cabinet making a decision. So I I think literally any chancellor would be in there making those same arguments yeah. and it's about the the, the, you know, the the things that come out i mean i i think that he i think it's right that he has shown that sort of intellectual flexibility i think you know he is still fundamentally a conservative chancellor i think he is going to be concerned about the long-term impact of all this on the public finances but he understood and i think still understands that we're in a new global environment where central banks around the world are printing money standing behind finance ministries he understands that the priority is preserving jobs yeah. minimising damage to the economy. And you've seen that in the, in the scale of the response. So I, I do think there is that sort of intellectual understanding of what's mm. needed.
Well, let's rewind to both of your uh, experiences and previous lives in politics. James, how do you how do you make a chancellor or a shadow chancellor popular, and and should that be the aim? Well, I mean, look, Rishi Sunak's given us a, a sort of obvious answer, which is that you, you end up handing out large amounts of money to large numbers of people in the middle of a, a, an alarming, a very frightening public health crisis. I mean, this is like the baseline for why Rishi Sunak's popular over this year. Um, but what, what you need to do, I think, uh, and in particular, if you're a, a Labour chancellor, and perhaps particularly if, you, if you're John McDonnell, uh, who you know, arrived as shadow chancellor in 2015, mm-hmm. is that there's a degree to which you need to work against type. I think, as a Labour Chancellor, which is to to demonstrate a, a kind of seriousness of purpose. Like no, nobody's going to be that surprised if you say we want to increase spending on. Oh, that line to James, not the best I've ever heard. So let's let's refer it to you, Rupert. Um, you had is it fair to say you had something of, of a challenge making George Osborne popular? Well, look, obviously, it's easier when you can hand out large sums of money, and that makes yes. your sort of day to day life as Chancellor easier. But. I don't actually think that is the solutions long term. I think that actually what works is having a plan, articulating that plan, communicating why you're making the choices that you're making. And in the end, also, it's the outcomes. You know, a chancellor in the end is judged by can they deliver the jobs, uh, you know, the growth in the economy. And so even if, you know, if you think about the, you know, the period I was in the Treasury was 2010 to 2015, you know, we were faced with this sort of uh, catastrophe in the public finances, had to make very, very difficult decisions on spending, which obviously led to some short-term unpopularity, and we all know that. But in the end, when we came to the 2015 election, you know, we went into that election with a strong lead on the economy because George Osborne had been sort of seen to sort of stick to his guns and deliver strong growth and jobs in the economy. And that was one of the big reasons why the Conservatives won a surprise majority of that election. So in the end, I think it's more important to kind of have a plan, communicate that plan and deliver the outcomes. Yeah, that's really what people will judge you on over the longer term. But we know how much um, Rishi Sunak has put into the comms around what he's doing and generating that kind of um, that brand image around him. And I wonder if George Osborne had a similar appreciation of that. And if he was ever concerned, like, you know, when he, when he as I mentioned, he was booed at the Paralympics, did that did that affect him? Yeah, I think, of course it did. I think, you know, he was from, from memory, you know, he was there with his son. I don't think it was a very pleasant experience. But I think he'd also been in politics long enough to know that, you know, it can be a rough business and that it's more important to focus on the day job. Um, but, you know, he was, you know, all politicians these days have to be focused on, I mean, it's not so much just branding, but on communication, because, you know, they're existing in this incredibly noisy environment, not just with media, but social media, there's sort of incredible competition for attention. We've now got the challenge of disinformation. But you, you have to work very, very hard at communicating, at crafting and communicating simple messages to explain what you're doing and you know, the sort of phrases that, you know, if you think back to the, the sort of coalition government era, we had a long term economic plan that got sort of there was a phrase that got regurgitated again and again by conservative spokespeople in the run up to the election until people sort of were sick of it. But it, you kind of have to do that if you want to cut through the incredible noise then, you know, communications is part of politics. Mm. And James Medway, um, do you, is it difficult for, for someone like Rishi Sunak to be um, popular and successful as a chancellor if he is, you know, A, very wealthy himself and B, married to one of the wealthiest uh, women in, in the country? Is, is that something that might hold him back in the future? 
Well, I mean, look, at this point of time, it clearly isn't. And I think people will judge him by what he does and what he says he's going to do rather than more than where he comes from. And clearly, there's going to be a certain amount of highlighting of this by some of his opponents. But I don't think it really counts very much. You have to judge someone on their deeds and their actions mm. rather more than, than where they come from. That's, that's probably how people are going to rate him, frankly. But what about when... You know, the axe man returns and actually he needs to start clawing back uh, some of the money which was spent to deal dealing with the pandemic and you know maybe taxes start to rise and things like that. Well, if he's look, if if he's got any sense, he won't do that and he'll work hard against type. I mean, already there's enough conservatives now floating the idea of a wealth tax, a one-off wealth tax, was being discussed in this program earlier. If Rishi Sunak has any sense, and I believe he is quite smart, I think he'll probably be more inclined to talk about doing something like taxing and be able to say, I too am wealthy, so I understand what this means. And that could be a very powerful thing for him to do. And if he's smart, he'll do it, I think. The sort of Donald Trump thing, Rupert, of I'm very wealthy, I know all the loopholes and and, and, uh, and things that need closing up and the best way to tax wealthy people, because I am one. Yeah, I'm not sure who could take the Trump suit. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I think in the end it, it won't matter. I think that there will be a, a, a huge temptation for the Labour Party to try and attack him on that, and I don't think it will work because it tends not to. And I think the public see, see, the, see the man, see the person, and uh, they see their priorities and what they do. And I don't think they will judge him on, on who he's married to. Um, you know, I think he will be concerned about the public finances, and there will be a huge challenge to try and balance how he addresses that to demonstrate that it's fair, that it's balanced, that he's putting the right emphasis on supporting the economy in the short term while also ensuring that our public finances are sustainable for the long term. Like these are the bread and butter of being Chancellor, and that's the tightrope he's got to walk. But, you know, I really think that the public will see through to the substance and I, I think attempts to sort of try and turn it into a personal story, you know, almost never work, really. But but the, the sort of personal story aside, um, and I know James mentioned the idea of a wealth tax and, and things like that, but such is the hole in the finances because of the pandemic. There is going to have to be something which, you know, pinches the pockets of the non-wealthy as well. Is that right? And that will, will certainly affect his standing. No, I think, again, it comes to how you communicate it. You go back to, again, that sort of run-up in the 2015 election, you know, the, the phrase, we're all in this together, I think was important. And obviously, like, the Labour Party tried to attack it and undermine it. But the fact that, we, you know, if you're able to demonstrate that you are, you know, ensuring that everyone plays their role, I think the Conservative Party has also shifted quite a lot. I think there is quite a lot of appetite in the Conservative Party more broadly to ensure that taxation is fair, that if, there, if you are going to kind of restore the public finances, that it's done in a way that is, is fair and seen to be fair. So, I, you know, I don't think you're going to see, um, uh, I, I think you will see a sort of a chancellor and a party that are very keen to demonstrate that, both yeah. in terms of different income levels, but also, you know, different parts of the country. That's all we've got time for on the Red Box Politics podcast today. Remember, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts from, including, and I would recommend, the Times Radio app. And don't forget to subscribe to the Times Red Box email every morning. Uh, you have to be a subscriber of the Times to do that. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.